And before we look at uh, this scripture today, uh, you may have seen the, the four-minute video that went viral uh, recently, um, created by a young poet who goes by the name of probably Tom Foolery, and it's called The Great Realization. Um, I'd like to read the, 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 um, the poem from the video for you, and um, as you listen, think about what you relate to, what, um, what's true and even inspiring about what this poem expresses. And also, you can think about what's not true, what's a false assumption or a false hope. And listen carefully, because afterwards, I'm going to invite you to share your thoughts. So this begins uh, with a child whose father is putting him to bed. Tell me the one about the virus again, then I'll go to bed. But my boy, you're growing weary, sleepy thoughts about your head. Please, that one's my favorite, I promise, just once more. Okay, snuggle down, my boy, though I know you know full well. The story starts before then in a world I once would dwell. It was a world of waste and wonder. I, sorry, I lost my place. Of poverty and plenty. Back before we understood that hindsight's twenty twenty. You see, the world came up with company, or sorry, the people came up with companies to trade across all lands, but they swelled and got much bigger than we ever could have planned. We'd always had our wants, but now it got so quick, you could have anything you dreamed of in a day and with a click. We noticed families had stopped talking. That's not to say they never spoke, but the meaning must have melted and the work-life balance broke. And the children's eyes grew squarer and every toddler had a phone. They filtered out the imperfections, but amidst the noise, they felt alone. And every day the skies grew thicker till you couldn't see the stars. So we flew in planes to find them while down below we filled our cars. We'd drive around all day in circles. We'd forgotten how to run. We swapped the grass for tarmac, shrunk the parks till there were none. We filled the seas with plastic because our waste was never capped until each day when you went fishing, you'd pull them out already wrapped. And while we drank and smoked and gambled, our leaders taught us why. It's best not to upset the lobbies, more convenient to die. But then in 2020, a new virus came our way. The government reacted and told us all to hide away. But while we all were hidden amidst the fear and all the while, the people dusted off their instincts. They remembered how to smile. They started clapping to say thank you and calling up their mums. And while the car keys gathered dust, they would look forward to their runs. And while the skies, or with the skies less full of voyagers, the earth began to breathe, and the beaches bore new wildlife, which scuttled off into the seas. Some people started dancing, some were singing, some were baking. We'd grown so used to bad news, but some good news was in the making. And so when we found the cure and were allowed to go outside, we all preferred the world we found to the one we left behind. Old habits became extinct and they made way for the new, and every simple act of kindness was now given its due. But why did it take a virus to bring the people back together? Well, sometimes you got to get sick, my boy, before you start feeling better. Now lie down and dream of tomorrow and all the things that we can do 
And who knows, if you dream hard enough, maybe some of them will come true. We now call it the Great Realization, and yes, since then there have been many. But that's the story of how it started and why hindsight's 2020. So I'd like to give us a chance to answer those two questions now. First, what's good and true about this poem? And then second, what's not true? What's a false assumption? And uh, if we were in person, I might ask you to turn to the person next to you and chat about that for a couple minutes. But since we're not, let's try something creative and use the breakout rooms for a few minutes. So what we're going to do is we're going to put you in randomly assigned groups of uh, three or four, and you'll receive an invitation in just a second to enter your breakout room where you can chat. Um, if you'd really rather not, uh, for some reason, you can decline the invitation and just stay in the service um, for the next few minutes. But we'll give you about five minutes to share, and then you'll get a message that you have one minute before the room closes. And you, when you wrap up, you can leave, or it will kick you back into the main service when the rooms close. So again, the, the two questions are, what's good and true about the poem? What do you resonate with? And then second, what's a false assumption, something that's not true? If, the scripture for today is 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9. And like the poem um, that we just discussed, the scripture is about hope and um, hope for a better future. Don't you long, don't we all long for a better future, especially right now? And so I'd like to take a look at the scripture and to see what sort of hope the Bible offers for a better future. And then we'll talk about how to respond to that hope. Let me start by offering the good news that the Bible agrees with the poem that there can be a better future. And in fact, it assures us that there will be a better future. So let's explore the future as it's described in this passage by asking six questions of the passage. And these are the more or less the questions that all good journalists are trained to ask. Who, what, where, when, how, and why? So first, who? According to our passage this morning in 1 Peter, who is going to ensure that we enjoy a better future? Is it we ourselves? Is it humanity? Are, are we going to finally figure things out and fix things up and sort things out? Well, that's not the answer the Bible gives. Rather, the Bible points us to God. As verse 3 puts it, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So right away, we realize that the words of hope in this passage are being offered to those who can say with the Apostle Peter, who wrote this letter, our Lord Jesus Christ. For such people, Jesus Christ is our Lord, our King, our authority, our leader, our ruler. And, and if we have given our allegiance to Jesus Christ, that changes our relationship to God. And incidentally, I'll come back later to those who are not followers of Jesus Christ to say how this relates to you. But for those who follow Jesus, notice who God is to us. Not just the man upstairs, not just the great being up in the sky, but rather the God and Father of Jesus Christ. The God of Jesus Christ. We know God. We have a relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. Our God is the God that 
Jesus knew and taught us to know, the God that Jesus revealed to us and embodied for us so that we could see what God is like. Further, our God is the Father of Jesus Christ, the one Jesus knew as Father and who taught us to know as Father too, a good Father, a kind, strong, dependable, wise, merciful Father. That's the who that we look to for the better future. We look to the God and Father of Jesus. We don't look to ourselves. I'll say more about that later. We don't look to ourselves. We look to God. But now we move on to the second question, what? What will this better future look like that we're looking to God for? Our passage uses three terms to describe this future. It uses in verse 3, living hope. And then in verse 4, inheritance. In fact, an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And then in verse 5, salvation. Now, these are all big religious terms, so let me unpack each of them a bit, because here's the danger with with religious words, words that are thrown around a lot in churches. First, those who aren't religious don't know what they mean. And second, those who are religious often don't know what they mean either. (laughs) We, We church folk may think we do because we hear these words all the time. We even sing about them but often we don't know what they actually mean. And and I'll tell you why. And that's because uh, we tend to learn what religious words mean from church instead of from the Bible. And often in church, whenever words are, are used a lot, and this is the case in church, over time they evolve and they come to mean something different than what they originally meant. In this case, different from what the Bible means by them. So the real place to look for the real meaning of important words in passages like our passage in the New Testament is in the Bible that the New Testament writers and their readers had when the New Testament was being written, which in this case was the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. So let's do that. Let's look at the Old Testament for the meaning of these words. The first word or or phrase is living hope. The hope that we have for the future is about living, not dying. The better future that we're looking forward to is characterized by life, not death. And let me give you just a couple places of many in the Old Testament where this living hope is described. So one would be Isaiah 65, which talks about this living hope. See, God says, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. I will take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will not be heard anymore. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. Life, a living hope. Or how about Micah 4? The Lord will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. Again, a living hope, a future full of life and of peace. 
Second word, inheritance. In the Old Testament, the inheritance of God's people, the Israelites, was the promised land. Getting your inheritance for the Israelites meant being brought out of slavery, going through the desert, and then into the good land of of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, where you could settle down in safety and enjoy life and peace with God in your inheritance. And in the New Testament, this inheritance is expanded not just to the land of Canaan, but to the whole earth. Matthew 5, 5, for example, says the meek will inherit the earth. The inheritance we look forward to is, is a new earth, a renewed earth, and all that's in it to live in, to enjoy, full of blessing and life with God. What an inheritance. So living hope, inheritance, and then third word, salvation. We, church folk, we we think we know what salvation means because we hear it so often, but listen to our verse again, verse 5, the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice Peter's talking about a future salvation here, And, and the emphasis isn't just personal salvation, although that's certainly part of it, Verse 9 does talk about the salvation of our souls. But here again, let's not assume we know what souls are, because in the Bible, souls are not the spiritual part of us that goes to heaven when we die. That's Greek philosophy. That's not biblical Christianity. As N.T. Wright puts it, in the Bible, your soul is yourself. It's your whole person. N.T. Wright says memorably, we are saved not as souls, but as wholes. He's not denying that we're saved as souls. He's just correcting that souls are actually wholes. They're whole persons in the Bible. Salvation in the Bible is holistic. It includes renewed people with new bodies living in a new creation. That's the salvation. That's the better future that we look forward to. When God rescues us from trouble, from suffering, from all that we've done to ourselves and to this world, and makes things right, makes all things new, as the poem we we listened to earlier so eloquently, if imperfectly, points us toward. So to review, who will give us a better future? Not ourselves. Look at our track record. We are not capable of saving ourselves. Who then? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is that better future? It's a living hope, a hope pulsing with life. It's an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, a renewed world. It's salvation, the restoration of all things, including our whole selves, who will get to enjoy it all forever with God. And so that leads us to where. Where will this better future be? Well, verse 4 says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And I think this is probably the most commonly misunderstood part of this passage because we are not going to heaven to enjoy this better future, ultimately. Any more than you would go to a bank vault to enjoy your most precious possessions, which you keep there for safety. You may have a safe deposit box for security, but the bank is not the place you plan to stay to enjoy what you store there. Likewise, our inheritance is kept in heaven for us, for now because it is safe there, because it's in heaven. It can never perish, spoil, or fade. God guards it and preserves it and protects it. 
But heaven is not where we will ultimately enjoy it. No, we'll enjoy it on earth, on a new earth. Read the last two chapters of the Bible. In the end, heaven comes down to earth. God comes down to earth, bringing our treasures with him. And we enjoy it all on a renewed, remade earth, a new heavens and a new earth. Where is the better future we look forward to? It's on a renewed, transformed earth. So then when? That's the next question. When will we enjoy this better future? As soon as coronavirus is over, as the poem suggests? As soon as we wake up and we remember our better instincts and we get our priorities straight? Boy, that would certainly be a good thing for us to get our priorities straight and remember our better instincts. It will be a good thing if we can remember to care for one another, if we can put people before greed, if we can care for God's creation. The Bible certainly encourages us, commands us even in those directions. But the Bible also recognizes realistically that that won't be enough ultimately. So how does the Bible answer the when question? Verse 5. The salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In the last time. Literally, in the last kairos. Some of you know that Greek word kairos that's used here. In the last kairos. It refers to a special time, a unique season that's pregnant with possibility. That's what kairos means. Not just any time, but a unique time. In this case, the time when God finally says, it's time. God will bring about a better future, and it will not fully arrive until God decides it's time. Until, as verse 7 puts it, Jesus Christ is revealed. When Jesus steps back into history to complete what he has begun, to bring heaven to earth, to bring his followers into the new life of the better future, which leads to our next question, how? How will this happen? But before, let's review again what we've learned so far about the Bible's picture of this better future. Who? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What? A living hope, an amazing inheritance, salvation. Where? On a new transformed earth. When? In the last time when God decides to step in and Jesus Christ is revealed. And so now, how? How does this better future come? Again, according to the Bible, it takes more than humanity waking up to our better instincts, as if there were a golden age that we'd forgotten before we got so busy and corporations got so big, and we we just have to get back there to what, the 1950s? No, it takes more than us waking up and changing our ways, though that is certainly what God wants us to do. But it will take more than that. It will take God stepping in. And how is God going to do it? Through an act of radical newness. Verse 3 says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We celebrated it at Easter, right? The ultimate act of radical newness as Jesus pioneered a new future for us As he blazed a trail into that future, that's why we follow Jesus. That's why we worship him. That's why we put our hope in him. 
That's why the better future comes when Jesus Christ again is revealed, because Jesus is the one who broke through death, and when he was raised again to life, he got to the life that's on the other side of death, the eternal life, the living hope, the better future. And so Jesus is the only one who can bring us into the life that's beyond death, the endless life, the boundless life. And when we put our faith in Jesus, when we give our allegiance to him as our King and Lord, Jesus says to us, I will take you with me into that life. Now in this lifetime, in part, I will give you a taste of it. And then fully in the last time when I am revealed, you will enjoy it fully. So for those of you who don't know Jesus, um, here's how you get in on that better future. You put your faith in Jesus, you give him your allegiance, and you ask him to count you in on that better future. And to give you a portion of that life now. And then to teach you how to begin to live into that better future and work toward that better future now. And Peter uses the phrase new birth in verse 3 to describe what it's like to enter into the radical newness that Jesus offers through his resurrection. New birth suggests a conversion, a new beginning, an experience of that radical newness in your own experience. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we give him our allegiance, he offers us new birth a place in that better future, and new life now, a partial experience, a down payment of that better future and that living hope. That's how the better future comes, through acts of radical newness. Jesus' resurrection to new life and our new birth into that new life when we put our faith in Jesus. Well, then finally, last question, why? Why would God give us a better future? Answer, verse 3, because of his great mercy. God looks at this world, and how does God feel? When he sees plastic building up in the oceans, killing the sea creatures. When he sees smoggy skies choking out the stars. When he sees busy, stressed out parents and children running around in circles for who knows what reason. When he sees selfish, self-centered people seeking only what's best for themselves, but then even that doesn't make them happy. How does God feel when he sees all that? Well, he feels sad. He feels very sad. And he feels angry. He feels extremely angry. But he also feels something else, a feeling even deeper and more moving than sadness or anger. God feels mercy. Our passage doesn't unpack it right here, but that's why Jesus came to earth in the first place. That's why God let him come. So Jesus could die taking the penalty and the consequences of our wrongs on himself. And then so Jesus could rise again into the new life, the better future beyond, opening the way for us to have life with him in that new future too all because of God's great mercy. God, in mercy, as Jesus, came down and allowed himself to experience our circumstances, the pain, the suffering, 
God took them on himself so that we weren't stuck in them, but so that we could have a better future. Isn't that great news? That, all of that, all of that great news in this passage tells us that a better future is coming and that we are all invited into it by giving our allegiance and trust to Jesus Christ. So question, how should we respond? Well, for those of you who have not given your allegiance to Jesus, here's what I'd suggest. Make an effort to check out Jesus, to see if if these things are true, to, to see what Jesus is like and who he claimed to be, to see why he came and what he offers, why he died, why he rose again. Ask a friend to read the story of Jesus with you and and see if he's worth following and trusting. If you can trust him to bring you into a better future that we all long for. If you don't have a friend who you're comfortable having do that with you, we would be happy to to help you find someone as a church. You can just reach out to us in the chat or email us at info at communitybiblechurch.org and we'll help you find someone who would just read the story of Jesus with you and help you make sense of it. Well, what, what about those who, who already follow Jesus? What difference does this better future make for us? How are we to respond? Well, Peter says we have so much to look forward to that, I mean, there's many, many ways to respond. That, that would, would take weeks to unpack fully. But the, the way that Peter gives us right here and what he points us toward he says our, partially our response can be nothing else but joy. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Verse 8, you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We are looking forward to a better future. It's going to be awesome, more awesome even than the poem we read expresses. But notice also something interesting about this joy. It's not naive. It doesn't ignore or discount the present, the present problems in the world. But rather, verse 6, it admits, now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Notice it's not rejoicing instead of grieving, not joy instead of suffering. No, it's rejoicing and grieving. Joy and suffering, it's both and. Incidentally, psychologists would tell us that this is what emotional health looks like. Not always overwhelmed with sorrow and grief, but also not in denial about difficulties, not always going around with a pasted-on smile on your face, but rather having the full range of human emotions. Sure, we grieve. Sorrow doesn't mean that we don't have faith. We do experience pain and sorrow, and and it's healthy to express those. Just read the Psalms. But we also remember that we have a better future. We have great hope. We have um, a wonderful uh, uh, future that we're looking forward to, and so we rejoice greatly as well as grieve. Grief and joy. Grief because we suffer, because things are hard. Grief Because often we don't see Jesus. Verse 8 says, even though you do not see him now, where are you, Lord? Around us, people are suffering and struggling. 
the poor and the underprivileged often suffer most, and often it's through no fault of their own. We are struggling too. Why don't you do something, Jesus? We can't see you. Peter says such suffering tests our faith. Verse 7, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, that it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Trials test our faith. Is all this stuff about God and Jesus really true? Will we stay committed to Jesus, not just as a fair weather fan, but uh, a fan, but but through hard things as well? Can we keep our eyes on the better future to come and wait for it patiently when when it takes so long to get here? If we can, if our faith is is battle tested, if it's refined and purified in the fire of struggle, Peter says it is worth more than gold. And it will result, he says, verse 7, in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Praise, glory, and honor for whom? For Jesus or for us? Well, we, we probably think Jesus, but, but Peter's actually not too clear here. And so as we close, let me just pause to, to unpack this briefly, this praise, glory, and honor business. Because these are more religious words that we can, we can read right past, but this is the punchline of our better future. And here's what we often miss about these words, praise, glory, and honor. These are shame and honor words. Shame and honor words spoken in what in Bible times was a shame and honor culture. In the West, we chase money, we chase comfort, we chase security, we chase pleasure. In Eastern cultures, like those to which the Bible was written, they chase praise, glory, and honor. For them, to get in on praise, glory, and honor was certainly a better future. It's what everyone was chasing. So who gets the praise, glory, and honor when Jesus steps in and brings to fullness the better future? Well, think of a big, big game like the Super Bowl. Imagine it's a tight, well-played game to a stadium packed with crowds. The game goes down to the wire, but in the end, one team wins, right? And the other walks off the field disappointed, maybe feeling a bit of shame. But what does the winning team feel? They feel joy. They feel excitement. They feel glory and honor. And who shares in it? The players, the coaches, the owners, and the fans too, right? Whether they're at home, whether they're in a bar somewhere, whether they're in the stadium, the raucous stadium, everyone shares in the joy of victory. Sure, the players and and maybe the coaches get the main praise and glory, but everyone who loves the team shares in it. And it's the same when Jesus is revealed. He gets the main honor, the main praise, but we as his fans, as his followers, who've stuck with him even through the grief of suffering, we will share in it too. We won't walk off the field or out of the stadium of life with our heads hung low. No, we will share in the glory of 
vindication and victory, the glory of the better future as it comes. That's what Peter's saying here. And that's why even now we can rejoice greatly. We know how it all ends. We know that a better future is on its way. So let's end by by doing that now, by doing what Peter encourages us to do in response. Let's end by rejoicing. We're going to sing as a closing song, Rejoice the Lord is King.